Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Have you ever been on the outside looking in? When I was a kid, we moved into a new neighborhood, didn't know anyone. I was the outsider. A few weeks in, uh, one of the neighborhood kids invited me to ride dirt bikes with a crew that did that regularly. And, and I was really excited to be invited to be part of that. The day I showed up, though, I knew that it was a setup. The neighborhood bully was waiting for me and it was a plan and he was going to he was going to rough me up. And I was easy pickings. I was the new kid, only child. I was super scrawny, about 70 pounds soaking wet. And I used my gift of gab that day to get myself out of a beating, but the damage was done. I can still, as I'm telling the story, feel it in my body, that sense of being the person on the outside looking in. Uh, a couple years later, in, in early high school, I remember another one of those instances where there was a party and some friends had casually said they could pick me up for the party. And I waited at the window and I literally waited for hours. I remember the window. I remember what it looked like outside and they never showed up. The pain the next day at school of hearing everybody at this party that I wasn't invited to, it hurts. Uh, these things, uh, these wounds, they stay with us. Have you ever been on the outside looking in? I, I bet you have. You might be there right now. Maybe COVID has accentuated that sense of being on the outside looking in. If you're not, I bet you can think back through your life. Most of my friends and family can remember vivid stories of being the person on the outside uh, looking in. If we can remember an instance like that, or or if you're sitting in that, in, that, in that sense right now, this will be easy for you to connect with our story today. It's the story of Jesus uh, and the ultimate outsider. We're in the third week of a series on the Gospel of John called Encountering Jesus. And John's purpose for his gospel is incredibly clear in John 20, 31. John wants us to know Jesus more so we can trust Jesus more so we can find life in his name. And to accomplish that, John gives us this kaleidoscope of images, and they're meant to complement one another and form this fully deep-orbed picture of who Jesus is. In week one, we looked at the image of, of Jesus, of the Word. Jesus is God creating anew. In week two, it was Jesus, the temple. Jesus is where heaven and earth come together. And this week, we're going to look at Jesus, the well. Uh, Kelsey will be reading our scripture for us today. Kelsey, take it away. Today's scripture reading comes from John 4, 3 through 26. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciple had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also the sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can now see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for, salva for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kelsey. I've been reading a book called Cast, uh, The Origins of Our Discontent by historian Isabel Wilkerson. She won a Pulitzer for previous work. She's been working on this book for 10 years. I think she's probably going to win another Pulitzer for this book. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Her thesis is that the heart of our divisions in society, and we've all sensed these divisions, are these invisible caste systems. And caste systems, she would say, are uh, hierarchies that uh, they form hierarchies placed on human value. And we determine human value by things like uh, race and ethnicity and gender and religion and political affiliation and socioeconomic upbringing. And all these things form these caste systems. And then we draw these boundary lines that keep people in their place. In the first century, when Jesus was ministering, as a backdrop to the story that was just read, 
there was most definitely a very rigid caste system. It was full of hierarchies and power plays and divisions. And the divisions and the hierarchies were well-defined by distinct boundary lines. And today in this, in this story <clears throat> with, the, with the woman at the well, Jesus is going to He's going to bust through a couple of these boundary lines. Jesus is going to confront them and dismantle them and eventually erase them. Uh, John, uh, John gives us this story of Jesus and the woman in the well at the, it near, still near the beginning of his gospel. And it's long. It's a long story. Uh, Kelsey, we'll, we'll read a little bit more of it later. Uh, Kelsey didn't even read all of it. It takes up a substantial chunk of John's gospel, which tells us it's a really important story. It's important because of what's going on between Jesus and this woman who is the outcast, but it's also a par- meant to be paradigm shifting for us, the readers, but most definitely for Jesus's young disciples. This is one of his first road trips, if you will, with his young disciples. He's still teaching them what it means uh, to follow him. And he, in this story, is gonna be expanding their vision of who's in and who's out and who is invited to the party uh, in his kingdom. So a map's going to come up on the screen, and this map will be important for the details of, of the story. So as you look at it, I'll talk through it a little bit. John tells us that Jesus and his disciples on their road trip, they went from Galilee, which is in the north, Nazareth, where kind of Jesus was at, and around the Sea of Galilee, where his home base was. And they apparently had traveled down to Judea, which is where Jerusalem's at. Maybe they were going to a, a festival or, or they were visiting family. We're not sure. So now they're making their way back home from Judea in the south, back up north to Galilee. And John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria is right in the middle of the north and the south. And we'll talk more in detail about this in just a second. But the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along to the point where many Jewish people, if they were traveling from Judea back up north to Galilee, would take a route that went up and around Samaria. So they'd never have to step foot in Samaria or see a Samaritan person or come in contact with a Samaritan person. So if you're watching the map again, so Jesus is going north from Judea, he would, to take the route around, you would take a, a, a right over the Jordan River, up north again, and then back over. Uh, to totally evade the area of Samaria. But we also know from historians that that some Jews would take the easiest route. If you would map quest it or, or Google map it, that would be the quickest route by far to go right through the heart of Samaria. And we know that, that some Jews chose to do that usually when they were in a rush, if they had an urgent business and they couldn't afford to spend the extra time going up and around. Now back to John's line. John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. What did this mean? Was this because of geography? Was this because of urgency? What, what's going on here? Well, we know from Jesus and kind of how he carries himself, Jesus is really never in a rush. So I don't think Jesus uh, was rushing anywhere that he had to get somewhere in a specific sort of time. So I don't think Jesus would choose to take the shortest route through Samaria because of some sort of urgency. He had to get back home in a certain amount of days. Furthermore, some scholars think that Jesus was visiting his cousin John, who hung out in the Jordan Valley. So that's kind of all the way over to the right. So if he was indeed doing that, he would have easily taken the route that people took to evade Samaria. That would have been the simplest route and the quickest route for him. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, in fact, probably came from all the way over there and chose to go back the long way through Samaria. 
the, the phrase in the Greek is that he had to go through Samaria is we could also translate it that it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. I like that translation. That phrase is used six times in John's gospel, and it's almost always tied to divine will. I think this is what John is telling us with this kind of opening line of the story, that Jesus choosing to go through Samaria had a divine appointment with this woman at the well. So that's that's some context for you. So we're told that that they end up in, in right in the middle kind of of Samaria in a town called Sychar. And Jesus lands there, and there's a famous well called Jacob's Well. We actually know where that well is located. People go and visit it today and even still drink from it. It was a heavily venerated site for Samaritans, but also for for Jewish people because it was connected to the patriarch Jacob. So Jesus lands there. We're told it's noon. He's been traveling by foot. It's hot. He's tired. We're told the disciples go into town to get food. And Jesus is sitting here alone by Jacob's well in Sychar in the middle of Samaria. That's the context. And then we're told a woman approaches, just one woman, and it's noon, it's, it's midday. And this woman is, is, is likely very surprised to find uh, Jesus sitting there by the well. But Jesus, of course, is, is, is not surprised to see her because he has this divine appointment. So she approaches, I'm sure awkwardly surprised to find this strange Jewish man there. And then Jesus does something even more weird. He, he strikes up a conversation with her, which we'll learn in just a second is, would have been very odd and uncommon. And he actually asks her for a drink. And her response, and you can follow along in the text here in John 4, is she responds, Sir, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How is it that you can ask me for a drink? So this woman with her reply to Jesus' request, bring out two of the three boundary lines <clears throat> that were self-evident in Jesus' day that Jesus is going <clears> to <throat> excuse me, confront and then erase. So let's start with the first one. The first boundary line that Jesus erases is the ethnic boundary line. As I said earlier, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. That's probably putting it nicely. Most Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was great animosity between them. Why is that? Many books have been written on it. I'll give you the quick overview. Back in 931 BC, if you know your history of Israel at all, some of you may, uh, there was a split of the kingdom. So Israel became the northern kingdom of 10 tribes and the southern kingdom of two tribes, and Jerusalem is down in the southern kingdom. The Old Testament kind of goes back and forth between the two telling uh, stories. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were overrun. The northern kingdom by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And each, each uh, nation had different tactics when they, would, when they would conquer a territory. Babylonians would exile the best and the brightest, and we kind of know a bit of that story. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all that. So 70 years gone, they eventually returned really faithful and pious and probably more zealous and on fire to, to follow Yahweh and God than ever before. Uh, they rebuilt the temple and there's kind of a revival of sorts in the Southern Kingdom. Different story in the Northern Kingdom. The Assyrians didn't exile those they conquered. They infiltrated them and they created this kind of chaos of pluralization. And they would, uh, they would just throw a bunch of foreigners in the country to, they knew that they'd eventually intermarry and commingle and that's what happened. 
And so in time, uh, everybody got all mixed up and, and diverse, both a plurality of religions. And so the southern kingdom considered the northern kingdom to be blunt half-breeds is what they would call them. And they eventually became known as Samaritans. It gets worse. <laughs> the Samaritans came up with an alternate temple. The southern kingdom um, later would destroy that temple. Uh, G- the woman in the conversation with Jesus mentions this temple and this dispute that had I- existed. Uh, the animosity was so bad that, that, that the, or the hostility that Jewish people considered uh, some, anything Samaritans touched as unclean. And they also used uh, Samaritans as a slur. We see this later in John's gospel where people that don't like Jesus call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. <laughs> That's not meant to be a, a mean slur. And it went the other way as well. We, know, we have uh, historical evidence of when uh, Jewish people would travel through Samaria, sometimes they would be attacked. In one instance we know of, uh, many of them were killed. Uh, these groups of people hated each other. But Jesus steps right towards this boundary line in this conversation and request for a drink, and he does it intentionally. In fact, he thought it was necessary to do so. But keep in mind, Jesus is going towards 900 years of division. So this, the, the, the woman is surprised. So that's, that's number one, the, the, the ethnic boundary line. But then Jesus confronts an even deeper and more divisive boundary line, if you can believe it. And, and those of you who are, are female can believe it. And that's the, the gender boundary line. It's interesting later in the text when the disciples return and, and, and they're shocked. It, it doesn't say they were surprised to find Jesus talking to a Samaritan. They were surprised to find him talking to a woman is what it says. So why, is, why, why was this such a divisive thing? Well, Jewish people thought that Jewish men should never talk to Jewish women unless it was kind of an emergency. Maybe marriage was the caveat. And this was especially true in public. Jesus was not even not just a Jewish man. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Uh, there's a document that lists six things that were unbecoming of a Jewish rabbi. And number six was talking to a woman, much less having a theological conversation, which that topic uh, most thought was inappropriate to talk to a woman about. Some felt that even talking to your wife in public uh, was was inappropriate. Um, A woman who was caught talking to a man in public who was not her husband could have been accused of adultery and divorce. Now, those of you who are women, you're you're probably angry right now to hear this, but it's really important to understand this context because Jesus knows all of this, and yet Jesus asked her for a drink. But she's not just a woman. Let's go back to the first boundary line. She's a Samaritan woman. It's, it's, it's both of them together. So Jesus, as a picture of the scene, a single male rabbi talking to a single Samaritan woman at a well would have been tabloid worthy. That's not hyperbolic. Most observers in the day, including the, his disciples who would, who would eventually come and find this conversation happening, would have considered it shocking and immoral. Uh, it was an innately romantic setting and interaction. Uh, the Jewish, for the Jewish people especially, uh, because Isaac and, and Jacob and Moses all found their wives, where? At a well. So if you're single out there, uh, gentlemen, then, you know, find a local well. I'm here to, here to help. Uh, 
it was a shocking scene. We don't, it, to, our, to our modern eyes and ears, we read it, we listen to it. It's like, ah, it's maybe an odd conversation, but it's not shocking. It would have been shocking because Jesus is stepping over two boundary lines. John gives an editorial comment. He says that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So he's telling his audience, he wrote many decades later, some of the context that they may not have understood. This phrase can also be translated, and I think this is more accurate, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. I think that's how it should be translated. I think John's speaking of the idea of the drinking utensil. Going back to anything that a Samaritan or especially a Samaritan woman would touch would have been considered unclean. That was nominal thinking in Jesus's time from a Jewish perspective. And here Jesus is saying hi to this woman, interacting with her in, a, in an innately romantic setting, and then asking to share a drinking utensil with, with her. It's important to note if you're reading the text, and maybe you were bothered by this when you saw it, um, that when Jesus calls her a woman, he's not being disrespectful. This term in that day, the Greek word, would, would, is equivalent to our word ma'am. Uh, he uses the same phrase for his mother later in the gospel. Jesus is a complete gentleman here. It is, uh, it, it's, 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 we can't even begin to fathom how odd what Jesus was doing was, how, how radical it was for him to step over these two boundary lines. In verse 27, when the disciples return with their bags of groceries, and they, it, it, it says that they were, they were shocked their jaws dropped to the ground. Young guys, mostly teenage guys, this is their rabbi that they're trying to model their life after, and they come and find this scene. Then Jesus steps over a third boundary line, and the first two can be seen from the outside. It would have been evident that she was Samaritan and evident that she was a woman, but the third boundary line was an internal one that she carried but Jesus knew about. So that's the moral boundary line. So we're told that at noon, back to that detail, this woman comes to draw water. For original readers, this would have signaled something was off. It was common that day for women of the village who would be the ones who would typically gather water. They would go together. You needed water. They didn't have plumbing, obviously. So they would go twice a day, often morning and night. It's the desert. So they're going in the cool of the day, not at noon where it's really hot, and they would typically go together in a group. So two unique things jump out. One, it's a, a woman alone, and she's coming at noon. Why? Well, the original readers would have understood almost instantaneously she was an outsider. She was on the outside looking in. She was an outcast, and Jesus knows this. So she's been shunned for some reason, cloaked in shame, eyes averted to the ground, so Jesus, as they're conversing, and they have this kind of complex conversation, at one point, it seems like Jesus does, does a rabbit trail, but it's not a rabbit trail at all. Jesus is trying to steer the, con the conversation to the third boundary that he wants to confront and erase, and that's the moral boundary. And he says, hey, why don't you go and get your husband? Jesus knows full well she doesn't have a husband, and she's honest and says, I, I have no husband. And he commends her for her honesty, and then he responds, uh, that's right. Uh, you, you've had five husbands, and the man you're presently with is not your husband. By any historical measure, uh, a woman who had been married that many times, uh, something, it was an anomaly, something was off. Uh, and so what's behind this? What about that would have made this woman an outcast and shunned and ostracized? Well, there's a couple different options. One is that all five of her husbands 
may have died, even in a time where, where people didn't live as long, that was highly unlikely. Uh, second, uh, all five husbands might have divorced her. Men were the only ones who could enact divorce in that day. And they would have done so for two reasons. Why would five consecutive husbands divorce the same woman? Could have been barrenness, she didn't, couldn't produce children, or it could have been sexual immorality. It's unlikely that it was barrenness because it's a small village. People would have known that she couldn't have children after a couple husbands, so I don't think she would have kept getting married with that expectation. So there's something probably more nefarious going on. Uh, some scholars paint a darker picture, and they, 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 they say that it's important to see that the word translated husband can also be translated man and we don't really know which way to take it so if you if you if you reinterpret that statement jesus could have been saying you've been with five men and the man you're with now is not your man or not your husband that's a darker picture but it's quite possible that was going on uh, that that this woman was embroiled in some sort of uh, pattern of sexual immorality so that's, that's what I think is going on. We don't want, we want to be careful not to presume and not to judge. But we see, if we put the pieces together, that she is clearly outcast. She's coming at noon alone. And uh, that she has had multiple relationships, so something is going on. And then there is a confession of sorts that she makes when, at the end of the story, where she understands who Jesus is and she's experienced life in his name, uh, she returns to the village and she proclaims, he told me everything I've ever done. So there's a confession of sort of a lifting of sin and of shame. So this woman, w without getting into the details, because we don't really know the details, was cloaked in some sort of, of immorality. And yet uh, in the Mediterranean world, any, any group uh, would stay away from a woman like that. They would say, don't get close to her. It would make you unclean. It would ruin your reputation. It would ruin your honor. And yet Jesus doesn't move away from her. That's the very reason Jesus is moving towards her. The Samaritan woman is the poster child of, of an outcast and, and the outsider. She's got what I would call uh, an unholy trifecta from a Jewish perspective. Uh, she's this race that they would consider to be uh, people that have left the true faith and, and half-breeds and not faithful to the one true God. Uh, she's a woman who in that day didn't have many rights and, and were, were ostracized just for their gender. And then she's got some sort of an immoral past. She's the ultimate outsider. And yet Jesus found it necessary and to have a divine appointment with her, to go totally out of his way to have this encounter. That unholy trifecta did, did not keep Jesus at a distance. Jesus didn't reinforce the boundaries in his society. Jesus stepped in to erase them. Jesus didn't keep her in a state of being the outsider. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus invites the outsider in. And there's no better image of this than a well. Uh, Jesus the well. A well does not discriminate. Uh, our, our, our version of well would be indoor plumbing, right? You go and you, you turn it on and you get your water. And we, we've come to just count on that. And our friends in Texas recently discovered how difficult it was when, when they didn't have that uh, for, for a few days or a week. Uh, the well operated that way for people in the ancient world. 
they're human. Uh, we can only go for so long without water for cooking and drinking. Our bodies need water. And the well was their literal source of life. And a well didn't discriminate. A well doesn't know uh, what, what ethnicity you are. It doesn't know what gender it is. It doesn't know what kind of moral baggage. It's just there to offer water to anyone and everyone. And, and John is positioning Jesus, and Jesus is positioning himself as the well that does not discriminate, that offers water freely to all who would come. Jesus says this in, in essentially uh, in the conversation with the woman in verses 13 and 14. So let me read them to you because they're, they're very important to what's going on in the text. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's so hopeful for you and for me. Uh, remember the, the, the goal of John's gospel, that we would come to know Jesus more so we can trust Jesus more, so we can find life in his name. Jesus the well uh, promises there, there's no outsiders in, in God's kingdom. There's no, there's no boundary lines. Anyone that comes to Jesus will be offered a drink of water, of, of living water uh, to Jesus's, uh, to, to the party Jesus has. Uh, we don't have to be like myself in, in high school, waiting outside, waiting for anyone to come, waiting to be invited to the party. Jesus the well invites us in. Jesus had to go through Samaria. I love that line. It was, it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria because he had an appointment with this Samaritan woman. And it was obviously super impactful upon her life, but it's also meant to be paradigm shifting for his young disciples. He's clearly teaching them that day and painting a picture of what the kingdom that he came to bring will look like and how different that kingdom is from the world in which they live in. Uh, when they come back and they bring the groceries and they're shock and awe, and, and in the text, it's even awkward. They don't know how to even interact with him or talk to him about that. He's their rabbi, and yet they're just like, what is going on? And Jesus looks at them and tells them to open their eyes and look to the fields that are ripe for harvest. This is their first big road trip. Jesus is discipling them, and he's preparing these young boys to be the ones who would eventually build out his kingdom and build the church. He's trying to expand their vision of what his kingdom will be. To that point, they had a very narrow view uh, in a missional sense of who they were going to reach, who they were going to share the good news with. Jesus is expanding that with this paradigm-shifting conversation with the woman at the well. In Acts 1-8, after Jesus rises and he's about to ascend and he gives them the commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, uh, he, he specifically mentions taking it to Samaria. I love that. Uh, Jesus' model that day and his modeling in this conversation absolutely was a blueprint for the church, and they would follow it. It would shape the early church. We know this by reading the book of Acts and reading the epistles and then studying history after the scriptures uh, were written. Uh, the, the ethnic boundary, we know that around the early church table, there were Jews and Gentiles and Romans and Greeks and barbarians and Africans and Samaritans all at the same table in the same house church. 
that would have blown people's minds. It was, it, was, it was a totally foreign thing for people to see and experience, and yet we know that was happening. The early church uh, erased the, the gender boundary. We know women uh, planted churches and women led churches and women taught the scriptures and women served in really important roles like deacon and apostle and prophet. The way of Jesus did more for women than any movement that had ever arrived. And we also know Jesus, the Jesus' followers as they planted the church, the church erased the, the ethnic or, or the, uh, the moral boundary. Uh, I love that Paul who was so instrumental in planning so many of the early churches, <laughs> was the one who was responsible for killing Stephen, one of the first Christian martyrs, till Jesus changed his life. Paul later called himself the worst of sinners, and he's the one kind of leading and shaping this early church movement. We know that the early church were populated by ex-temple prostitutes, men and women, were invited in. That day, that this conversation with, with the woman at the well absolutely galvanized the early church and reshaped their minds and hearts into what the mission that God called them to looked like and expanded way beyond the boundaries that existed in their society. What happened uh, to the woman? Well, let me read what happened to her. Uh, she uh, actually returns to the village that had been shunning her and treating her as an outcast to share the good news with them about who she had discovered. This is what John tells us in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. He's Jewish, Rabbi, this is crazy. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. That's John's whole point of writing this gospel. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This Samaritan woman who possessed this unholy trifecta according to the Jewish mindset, this woman who was an outcast and shamed and disregarded, she became Jesus's first missionary. What? If that doesn't give you hope for yourself and for me, I don't know what does. Australian cattle farmers who uh, tend their cattle and have huge ranches in the outback it's simply untenable for them to fence in all their property. It's tens of thousands of acres. So they had to figure out how to keep their cattle close. They can't have them spreading out over all these tens of thousands of acres. They can't build fences to keep them in. So what they do is they put the well, the source of water in a central point so that cattle can only go so far because they're always going to come back to the well. What about our church? What about New Hope? I think churches have two different ways they can go as they go about sharing the good news and, and bringing the kingdom. We can try to build fences to pin people in. I don't think that that works well at all or that's not the call upon us. Or we can, we can build wells to draw them in. No boundary lines. Will, will, we, will we follow the example of, of Jesus in this story? Will we follow the example of the Samaritan woman who was... Her life was so revolutionized as Jesus brought her out of her shame and, and, and gave her a drink from the well and, and, and she tasted life that she went back to her village and, and became the first missionary. 
Well, we follow the, the model of the early church who erased all the boundary lines, keeping people out, who's in, who's out. They, had, they wanted nothing to do with that. And they invited in the name of Jesus, everyone in. Jesus, the, the word, uh, becomes Jesus, the temple, who becomes Jesus, the well. No boundaries, anyone and everyone. Uh, will we erase boundary lines, New Hope? Will we invite the outsider in like our Lord did? Will we point thirsty people to Jesus the well? I sure hope so. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for yet this, this new image uh, that for me, at least, I hope for our church, uh, is so deeply impactful. So often I, I limit, Father, what you want to do. And, and I play the game of who's in and, and who's out. And then I, I see this incredible story where Jesus early on is painting us a new picture of what the kingdom is supposed to look like. That we're not meant to build fences, we're meant to build wells, we're, we're meant to erase boundary lines and invite anyone and everyone to Jesus the well, to drink, to find life in his name. And God, if there's anyone uh, listening today who has never come to Jesus the well, and maybe they, they've always felt like they were the outsider and, and they weren't good enough or, or, or this certain quality because it's reinforced in our society that keeps them out, keeps them out of the church and out of the way of Jesus. I pray this story today could illuminate the fact that Jesus erases all that and anyone and everyone, wherever we come from, whatever we've done, by God's grace uh, in love are invited to drink from the well. And I pray that they would come and drink today. And God, as we uh, go out as the church, may we be a church that doesn't build fences, but we build wells, that we go out and we erase boundary lines, that we don't play the game of who's in and who's out, but we are the church that invites the outsider in to experience life in the name of Jesus, because we've experienced life in the name of Jesus. Uh, we love you and we praise you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.